Welcome to Behind the Stats with Matt Cross, a podcast taking a deeper dive into the sports stars from around the world so you can get to know the person behind the stats. Behind the Stats is sponsored by Buzz Physique. Use code MATT10 to apply 10% off your orders. And now, here's your host, Matt Cross. All right, guys, that's brilliant. Welcome to episode six of Behind the Stats with Matt Cross. Uh, I am extremely honoured and delighted today to welcome not only one of the the foremost swimming coaches in the world for his work that he's done in the past, but also someone who is a mentor to me, but also a, a brilliant friend, um, now National Performance Director for Swim Island. Uh, it's John Rudd. John, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Matt. A pleasure. Good to see you. So, John, we'll we'll start way back if we can. Um, your your tentative days at the start of your your career as a swimming coach. Um, so, started doing, I believe, a little bit of coaching up in Hull under your dad, and and then decided to come down to Plymouth for university. Is that is that pretty much where where I'm right? Uh, yeah, not far off. So in 1988, um, I was 18 years of age. I'd completed my A-levels rather unsuccessfully, I have to say. And, um, and the, I I hate to say this about them because they're such a great establishment. Now, now I've been there, but the last choice on my UCAS form was the College of St. Mark and St. John as it was then, now called Marjon University. Um, and it was the only university that would take me with the A-level grades that I got. Um, so I ended up 300-and-something miles away from Hull in Plymouth. Um, I could, you couldn't get much further away, I suppose, uh, without yeah. leaving the country. And <clears throat> and I started studying PE, and I, and I was still swimming at the time. Um, uh and I was I was a decent enough swimmer, but I was um, I worked I worked hard, but I wasn't particularly talented. Um, and so I I wanted to continue my swimming when I got there. Um, and I hadn't done a great deal of coaching at all. I'd done a little bit of teaching. I'd done some real basic qualifications, but um, no, my coaching my coaching knowledge and experience was was minimal to say the least. And then I decided I didn't want to swim after a few months uh, for all sorts of reasons. I think I'd grown out of sport, um, and so there was a there was an advert in the Swimming Times, really small one at the back that just said head coach needed Plymouth Leander Swimming Club, and I hadn't, I didn't really know Plymouth Leander Swimming Club that well. I'd swam with Port of Plymouth when I arrived because they were based on the campus of the university, um, and I didn't. You know, I've always, I've said this a million times before, so forgive me, people have heard it, but I didn't want to stack supermarket shelves. I didn't want to pull pints to earn a bit of cash to see me through uni. So I applied and um, and and I got the job on minimal qualifications and even less experience. Um, and I was really proud of myself. And it was only a few weeks later that I found out that I got the job because I was the only applicant, which really took the wind out of my sails. But that... The beginning of, of my coaching was being thrown at the deep end of being head coach of a club at 19 years of age, 1989, little experience. A lot of the athletes were older than me significantly. You know, I was coaching guys that were 25, 26, and I was 19. And uh, to say it was a, a learning curve is an understatement. No, definitely. And I, I, back in back in those days, obviously, for those that don't know, um, Port of Plymouth now lo- no longer exists. Um, but they were they were the best club in probably the city at that time. I, th- I think it would be fair to say, and Plymouth Leander probably wasn't as known as it is today. Would you say that's fair? Oh yeah, the Port of Plymouth was significantly stronger than um, than Plymouth Leander and Devonport Royal, which were the other two clubs in the city. I would say that Plymouth Leander and Devonport Royal were kind of on a par with maybe Plymouth Leander being slightly stronger, but not significantly different. Port of Plymouth was streets ahead. Um, I think they'd won the Devon County Club Champions title 
the year before I started with them or the year that they did swim it. They were in the top league of what was a speedo league at that time that became the arena league. So they were they were really, really strong. And um, if you were a serious swimmer in, in Plymouth, that's where you went. Um, and so Plymouth Leander was a minnow, uh, both certainly in a Devon sense, but even in a Plymouth sense, it was a minnow. So, yeah, it was. And I don't know that when I started it, I had any, I didn't, I didn't go in there going, right, I've got aspirations to make this some kind of superpower or uh, something wonderful. I simply wanted to um, earn some money doing something that I, I thought I'd enjoy, something that I'd have a skill set in, but that would yet to be found out because yeah. my only knowledge was the way that I'd been coached. And I don't, you know, I don't know that I'd necessarily been coached the way that we would coach now back in the 1980s. You know, it was volume and intensity and, you know, anybody talks about regeneration or recovery sets or regeneration weeks, you know, there was something wrong with you. Um, And that's what sleep was for. (laughs) Sleep (laughs) was your recovery between sessions. Um, So I could only only coach the way that I'd been coached. Um, So it was... Yeah, there was a there was a there was a massive gulf between between the clubs in Plymouth. Yeah, definitely. So let's let's sort of jump through through those next few years then, John. So when was it that you you decided actually, do you know what, we're we're building something here? What was like the turning point for you when you thought Plymouth Leander started taking that maybe that step above Port of Plymouth in the city sense, not necessarily becoming the superpower it, it, it became um so i've always i've always had this um principle if i'm going to do something i'll do it properly um and i i don't i don't have a particularly wide ranging skill set there's only a couple of things that i can i can do well i can write and it would seem i can coach and but most other stuff I'm embarrassingly bad at, you know, if someone says to me, put up a shelf in the kitchen or change a wheel on a car, I really don't know what I'm doing. So um, so if I'm going to do something, first of all, I have to feel that I've got an ability to do it. And then secondly, I'll, I'll throw my energy into it. And that's what I did. And again, I, I suppose I started off subliminally thinking, right, let's see if we can't become the best club in Plymouth. And that took a, that took a few years, but we got there maybe three years, four years, and suddenly Plymouth were the best club in Plymouth, uh, Plymouth Leander were the best club in Plymouth, and then they were the Devon Club champions. Well, that's that felt like winning the FA Cup. That was huge. Yeah. You know, on reflection, it, it it isn't big in the world of swimming, but it's certainly big in a localised world of swimming. And, and then it was like, okay, so we're the best in Plymouth, we're the best in Devon. What does it take now to be the best in the region? you know, to be the best in the Southwest. You know, and you look at the time at City of Bristol and Gloucester and Millfield and um, Kelly Colleges, as it was known then, and, and those kind of programs. And um, and Bath University had just started to get their, their thing together and, and were developing something. And so that was the next the next step was I, I'd like to feel that regionally we're, we're in more finals or winning more medals or whatever that might be. and And then... Then it was England and, and Great Britain, you know, and, and I just kept sort of changing the 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 mark of where where we where I wanted us to be, um, as we achieved that particular that particular thing, um, and I was there for twenty seven years, and so it was, you know, it certainly wasn't a flash in the pan, nothing fell in my lap, um, I had some real difficult times, I had some extremely supportive committees en route and early on I had some nightmare ones um but challenge challenges um help you progress and develop they they're uncomfortable at the time and and they can be quite um, disappointing and you know a bit depressing at the time but if you can get past them and through them it makes you a stronger individual uh, and it makes you more equipped for the next time that a challenge like that comes along um, and I suppose my life in swimming has just been gathering additional equipment to deal with the next challenge that comes along, whether that's coaching club athletes, whether that's coaching Olympians, whether that's working with national teams, 
whether that's leading an, um, a performance program in a country or whether that's working with Fina Len and the World Swimming Coaches Association. You know, everything that you do has got to be it's got to be information and experience gathering so that you bolster your armory of tools to be able to deal with the next challenge that comes along. No, definitely. And so at what at what point, John, would you say you you sort of hit that period where you were like, right, we're we are now in a position to challenge to be the best in Great Britain as a club team. Was was like the the introduction of Plymouth College a key part in that? Was was it, you know, other athletes that you had around? Like what would you say kind of went you went, yeah, we're there now. We're pushing the top two or three in Great Britain. So I suppose there's a number a number of signposts on the way. The first one was my self-declaration, if you like, that in nineteen ninety-two when I graduated and I wanted to be a PE teacher, because all of my coaching for the first 15 years was part-time, certainly not part-time in energy, but part-time compared to what was either being a, a student or, or paying the mortgage, if you like, you know, which was school teaching. Um, in 1992, I made a self-declaration that I'm going to get a job, but it's only going to be in Plymouth. So the rest of my <clears throat> um, student cohort in my in my degree, the world was their oyster in terms of where they were looking for work, and mine was Plymouth because – I'd started Plymouth Leander and it was something that I was passionate about and I wasn't willing to leave it behind. So there was, that's number one. Number two, I suppose, was when I felt that we were the default choice for for ambitious athletes in Plymouth. So the point where if you were good, you came to Plymouth Leander. That, that was a big turning point. And in fact, if you were good and you were in Torquay or Exeter or Newton Abbott, you know, the, the, the hinterland of Plymouth, if you like, people started to migrate towards us, coming out of Cornwall and, and West Devon. Um, and then, then yeah, the, the, a really significant turning point was the relationship with Plymouth College because that did two things. One, it rescued the programme in terms of the pool because the pool that we were using at the time, Ballards, that you'll remember, um, was closing, but it was closing without our knowledge. Behind the scenes, the trust that was running it um, was was planning on closing that pool and selling the land and whatever else, and we weren't aware of that. And we were talking to Plymouth College, which for those of, out there who don't know, is an independent day and boarding school in Plymouth, the only independent school in Plymouth uh, for, for day and boarding pupils at secondary level at least, um, that um, to build a pool which we thought was amazing because it was going to be a five-lane, 25-metre pool, which sounded fantastic compared to our four-lane, 25-yard pool that we were using. Seaton Barracks was also closing, which was a 33-and-a-third pool we were building. Uh, sorry, uh, that we were using, not building, that we were using. And Central Park, which eventually turned into the Life Centre, that was also under the cosh. So three pools in Plymouth were under threat. And so the relationship with Plymouth College was really, really important in that sense that it gave us a pool. And in the second sense, that it allowed us to broaden our net to those athletes that we coached wider than those within drive time of Plymouth. And slowly but surely, you know, our reputation and our coaching abilities drew athletes in from around the country um, and, and then indeed around the world to, to Plymouth College. And by the time I left in the end of 2016, um, the the high performance element of the program was 50% Brits, 50% non-Brits. And of the Brits, a relatively small part was Plymouth. So it had become this, um, you know, program for the world. You know, we called ourselves the United Nations of Plymouth Leander at the time because that's what we were. Um, so it just, and, and, you know, in 1988, did I have that vision? Of course I didn't. Um, but... What what uh, what did happen, and we did do, was we allowed ourselves to evolve and have a have a strategic notion of what we were going to do next, as and when we achieved whatever it is that we'd set as an objective or a target in that in that period. Brilliant. So we'll talk now more about the high performance end as it got more and more high performance. Um, if you want, John and. 
we'll talk about you know probably the most significant swimmers to come through Plymouth Leander in terms of their international um, collection of medals and and records and things. So you've obviously got Cassandra Patton, um, who you played a big part with um, going into the the Beijing Olympics. Um, let's talk about Ruta and Ben, Anthony James, Steve Beckerleg, who were all on on uh, British and, and and English teams, and uh, and also the likes of Rebenga, uh, sorry Rebecca Acheng, Ajula Bushel. Um, you know the first ever black female British swimmer. So, what? H- how did you go from a club program that developed pretty good national level swimmers, national medalists, to? to then, you know, the step to to having those guys around? Um, I I, I don't know that as a coach, hey, look, first of all, I'll say that I was part of a coaching team with all of those athletes, right? So I was a head coach. I would say in the majority of cases, I was the primary coach for them. Um, But, you know, we were a coaching team and there was um, some very good assistant coaches and, S&C coaches and so on that assisted a lot along route, right? So, but in terms of my leadership of the program and having a, a primary responsibility for all of those athletes, um, first of all, there was a there was a whole bunch of mistakes. Um, and anybody who says that there weren't mistakes on route is a liar. You know, we all we all do that. Um, but there was also a whole bunch of good stuff that went on that allowed them to be as good as they were at that time. Um, and for some of them, they were their golden years. You know, they were the best swimming, uh, the swimming period that they had. What what did I do or what did we do? I don't know that we suddenly, you know, woke up one morning and went, hey, look, athlete X is now in the program or athlete Y is now in the program. We now need to do this. That wasn't that wasn't the case. We were already doing good stuff. Um and it was well planned and it was organized and um and it was and it was quite bespoke, you know, people that were identified in different coaching groups. And, um so it was more like waiting for the right athletes to walk through the door to to embrace and benefit from our good stuff rather than a good athlete walking through the door and us going, all right, because that person's now here, we need to change. You know, the kind of stuff that you would do with Cassandra Patton in comparison to Anthony James, you know, they're they're poles apart. Um, And I think that's maybe what a lot of clubs get wrong is that they do some coaching and it's just to the middle ground because they've got to cater for large numbers and they've got a lot of athletes in the lane because that's what they need to do to be able to pay for the water time. And hey, I get all that. Um, but we've we really did try and reach the individual within the group. Um now there was a the, the limitation eventually was the Plymouth College pool. What what at first felt like it was going to be something significant and, and wonderful in comparison to what we, we had before. A, and it was. There's no doubt about that. You know, an extra lane and a proper length pool was just brilliant. But success breeds success. And very, very quickly, we were banging our heads against the ceiling of what we could cater for in that facility. Um, And so the discussions around, um, you know, the life centre taking off, was really really important to us, um, and that but that wasn't until two two ten two thousand and ten that that really looked like it could happen. And there'd been a whole bunch, you know, I'd spent fifteen years in meetings talking to different councillors and different people about whether we should have fifty meter pool in Plymouth, and we got close on a few occasions, and then it died a death. So when this came about, you know, uh, we we were we were a little bit sort of wary as to how real it was. But it was clear and apparent that it was real. There's no doubt that Tom Daly's success as a diver in Plymouth really aided that. Ultimately, Ruta's gold medal at an Olympic Games um, aided it too. But let's remember that she won she won a gold medal after that pool was built. It wasn't built because she won a gold medal. So no one can attribute it to particular swimming success. But it was clear to Plymouth City Councillors at that time and various other stakeholders, the aquatics in Plymouth was something that the city could hang its hat on. 
you know, Plymouth Argyle weren't as strong as maybe they had been in the past. Now they were Plymouth Albion, the rugby team. Plymouth Raiders, the basketball team, were doing a decent job. But Plymouth really needed a sport that it could call its own and say, look at what we can do. And swimming and diving seemed to be doing that job for them. So I think that's where that came about. Um, But, you know, to go back to your point of, you know, what did we do to accommodate those athletes? Um, I would just say more of the same, but learn learn on a day-to-day basis. When you get to coach someone as quick as Anthony James or as quick as a Cheng or as quick as Ruter or as tough and resilient as Cassandra Patton or Laura Froschow or, you know, you, you learn a stack as a coach. Um, and so as long as you're not a closed book and you're willing to absorb what you've seen in front of you and and reflect on that and allow that to enable your planning the next week, the next month, the next cycle, then, you know, you, you evolve at, at least at the same rate as your athletes because that's the key thing. You've got to, your abilities as a coach, you've got to stay in advance of the athlete's abilities as an athlete. Yeah. Um, and so the, the greatest learning you get is from them. Um, and then the other thing, Matt, is <clears throat> I wasn't afraid to pick up the phone and talk to coaches and, um, and ask them their advice and their opinion. You know, because I think, as a, again, there's, a, there's a, a group of coaches out there that think that if they – if they ask for help or ask for advice or seek someone else's opinion, they're showing some kind of weakness or some kind of inability to coach. <clears throat> but having a vulnerability around your abilities at any one period of time is, is not a weakness. I think it's a strength and it, and it's a, it's an indication that you're willing to, to develop and progress as a person, as a coach, as a, you know, whatever it might be. So, um, you know, the, the the mentors that I had around that time that were most significant were certainly Bill Sweetnam and John Atkinson. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, some of the old school coaches in, in Great Britain that are no longer with us, like Paddy Garrett and Hammy Smith, uh, Laurie Dormer, you know, they, they were big influences on me and I'd often pick their brains. And then the, the coaches that were sort of my peers at the time, you know, I talked to, you know, so Rob Greenwood, Adam Rookwood, Russ Barber, um, you know, Mark Perry, the, those guys would all, we, we, we'd chat, we'd share. And that's the way we've been brought up as coaches. We've been brought up that if, if Britain as a swimming nation is going to be strong, we had to hold each other's hand, metaphorically at least. Um, and, and that's what we did. And so that sort of cocktail of stuff, I suppose, is, is the way that we manage those situations. Brilliant. And then, John, we'll talk talk about if we if we pick those athletes again. What what would you say to to any young athlete that's listening to this? What would you say makes a Ruta, a Cassie, a, an AJ, a Ben Proud stand up above and beyond what potentially you know someone who's who's not quite at their level does? What's the what are the key differences in their personality as world-class athletes to to guys that are trying to get there? All of the athletes that you've mentioned um, were, were highly able aquatic athletes. Um, where the differences come, even within that cohort of athletes that you've mentioned, you know, where you could you could um, say that they were better or worse than each other, is is in the holistic lifestyle commitment. Um, I, I think they were all excellent at that to different degrees. Um, but the person that stood out most significantly to me over the years of someone that, that, that really can live that day-to-day, um, you know, I am a performance athlete. This is what this is about. Uh, are both uh, is Ruta Teeter and Ben Proud. There's no doubt in you know, and that's not to to say that anybody else that I've coached was not good in that area, but they are the absolute standouts. Yeah. In you know, um, in in everything that they did, and and most impressively, Ruta as a as a youngster, you know, started coaching her at twelve, 
and Olympic champion at 15, world champion, world record holder at 16. And all through the period that coached her, my goodness, was was swimming like really high on her agenda. And then Ben Proud, um, equally the same, you know, nutrition, hydration, sleep, lifestyle, you know, that, that, so the, the, the thing I would say to young swimmers is, you know, the coach sees you for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon, and one hour in the gym, that's five hours a day. The other 19 hours are in your control. And the coach can give you advice and guidance and education on how you look after those 19 hours, whether it's schoolwork or university or whether it's what you eat, how you sleep, how you rest, you know, how you manage that period of time, how you keep your mind active, whatever it might be. But whether you do it is self-discipline and in, and is intrinsic, self-driven, um, because it's those 19 hours that absolutely make the difference uh, between, let's say, a great national swimmer and an international then make the difference between someone who qualifies for the Olympics and who gets into a final. And then absolutely, I don't know there's many Olympic medalists that don't have those tools. So um, that's the thing. Coach can do good stuff in the pool and good stuff in the gym, but everything else is athlete-centric. And and, um, because there's a difference between um, educating an athlete and an athlete delivering on the education. Yeah. Definitely. No, that's brilliant. So, John, with with then the continued success, all of those things uh, that we've spoken about with Plymouth and, and the continued progression, but then almost the even harder bit is once you've hit number one in Great Britain by winning the, the Speedo League or the Arena League, as it's now known, and top club at, at nationals and stuff, the harder bit is actually staying there for the prolonged period of time that obviously Plymouth did. Um, what I noticed, and obviously being one of them myself, was there was a lot of times where you hired previous athletes of yours to then come into coaching roles. Was that something that was through purely it was easier because they were around or something that you had in mind because they they sort of had been through that development with you. It's the best way to culturally embed what you're doing. <clears throat> um, if you if you have a belief in a system where your values, your the expected behaviours, the standards that you have, the team identity, you know all of those cultural aspects of who you are, the lifeblood that flows through you that is the program that, that at the time was. Plymouth Leander. Um, the best way to um, self-generate and regenerate that is to bring people in who already understand that and would have a belief in it and were part of it and weren't an antithesis to it. You know, so in the appointment of 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 retiring athletes, particularly if they had a status and a kudos in the world of swimming because of what they had achieved. But where you didn't have to spend, you know, the first six to 12 months in educating them as to what we're about and what we were trying to achieve and the role that we played in the development of young people and not just in the development of young athletes, they're they're two separate but associated things, then it makes life a hell of a lot easier. And and then when you're also, you know, what you're looking for in, in staff as well is you're looking for trust, integrity. Um, loyalty, that doesn't mean that they're not allowed to leave if they find something better. That's fine. All right, that's absolutely fine. In fact, you should pat yourselves on the back when that happens because you've you've enabled that to happen as part of your program, right? But when, you, but when you're looking for that, if as long as they've got the ability and a desire to coach and they've still got a hunger for the sport and a willingness to learn, you know, why would you, why would you not... In, why would you not employ your own people and and keep them in the system if that's if that's what they want? And even if it's just a one or two year stopgap before they you know move into another area, you know potentially around where they've studied at uni or whatever that might be. But 
So we did employ a lot of, um, you know, you're an example of it. But, you know, I would say what, seven, eight, nine different coaches in that time that yeah. were all a product of the system as an athlete. That then, you know, it was it was great. It was great to to keep them in the program, but but with a different role this time. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people that we've that we uh, that we did that for and with have now gone on to great things. You know, and a, no. uh, a, a a great example of that is is Steve Beckerleg, who came to Ireland with me. Came six months after came six months after I came as assistant coach of a national centre, and is now actually running the national centre as the head coach. And um, you know, I'm, I'm delighted that that Plymouth Leander and all of that stuff that was around him as an athlete was was absolutely the beginning of that. And there'll be other yeah. people where we could name them and, you know, they would have, have similar accolades. Definitely. No, it was um, it was definitely a, bit, a big thing that I saw. And mm. I know you, you spoke of, of Russ Barber earlier as one of your your sort of peers. I know he followed that that suit with what's happening at Sheffield as well. So it definitely seems to, to be a thing around that cohort of coaches you spoke of and definitely the development of, of swimming in Britain and Ireland now. Um, so, John, we'll talk now about your move. Um, 27 years at Plymouth Leander is, is, as you said, not a short stint. Um, obviously, a massive part of uh, of your life was Plymouth. You know, you uh, obviously from from knowing you as well as I do, and people might not. You had your your boys in Plymouth and and all that sort of stuff. So it's a huge part of almost now home as much as Hull was. So what? Was it that made you then decide, I'm um, I'm ready. I'm ready to to take that next step now away and and look at something else. We spend most of our life as coaches, I think, thinking about other people because that's inevitably what what we do is we we work every day to help other people be the best versions of themselves. Um, and there was this, and it was the time for me to reflect. You know, do you want to keep doing this? You've done it for a long time. Um, is it time to test yourself with something new? Because, again, I wasn't getting any younger, you know, in 2016 and 46, so, you know, pushing my 50th birthday. I need to think about where where and what I'm going to do. And, um, and also, and I don't know if this is, again, a, a weakness in, in my character, but I'd achieved everything that I wanted to ever achieve. And then didn't feel particularly motivated in just trying to do it again. So the me bit, okay. you know, the bit that was for yeah. me, which again, you don't think about that often, but it's like, you know, how many more arena league titles do we need to win before I'm satisfied? Coach an yeah. Olympic gold medalist, coached a world record. Um, you know, I've coached, mo- I think all of the gold medals that I could coach as a European coach coached. Yeah. Um, so what do I do now? Do I just see if I can do it again? And I do respect those coaches in other sports that can, you know, like let's take football as an example, go and win the Premier League or win the FA Cup. And next year they come back and they want to do it again. Um, I've done all the things that I wanted to do. And I just like, I don't know if I want to try and do it again. But what I was really interested in was trying to help other people to feel those points of elation and extreme satisfaction and joy of being able to say I was part of that. So, um, and I was, I'm also limited in, in where I can go and what I can do because I only speak English. So I needed an English speaking nation. And as I said, let's go back to my previous point. I don't have a massive skill set, but I can write, I can coach. I understand swimming. And there was a job to be a performance director with Irish Swimming. Um, so I thought, right, let's have a crack. So I applied and um, and I got the job. And five and a half years later, you know, here I am. And, and now I don't coach athletes on a daily basis, but I do try and support coaches and sports science practitioners on a daily basis to be the best version of themselves so that yeah. then they can help the athletes be the best versions themselves and so i'm coaching but i'm one part removed from coaching athletes if that makes sense yeah 
coaching coaches as opposed to to being on with the athletes now. Um, and and so so obviously you come to Ireland, and I think I'm 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 fair in saying at the time maybe Irish swimming or swim Ireland as it's now as it is wasn't doing particularly brilliantly in terms of putting people on Olympics and relays in the Olympics and, and things like that. So I know you've just obviously in Tokyo had the, the first relay in um, 40, 40 something years was, was the last time you had a, the swim island had a relay um, qualified for the, the Olympic games. So what, what have you brought to the table that maybe wasn't there before that you think's contributed to the success other than Steve Beckerleg being one of your coaches? <laughs> so um I think I think we just we just gotta be careful in, in how much we well there's a suggestion of uh, that Swim Island was was not doing well. And yeah. I think that I think that's probably an unfair statement, but okay. was it was it underperforming a bit? Could it have been better? Yes. Yeah. Was that was that anybody's fault or maybe probably not. It was just it was just the way that it was, the, the demographic of athletes at the time. Um, and it just, it, it just like anything does once in a while, it needed a freshen up and, a, and, a, and a, different, a different approach and a new set of eyes. And there'll be a point in time where someone else is the new approach and the different set of eyes to me. You know, it's just the way that life is. Um, but <clears throat> what, do, what do we do that, I mean, there's a number of things and I can't attribute you know, like Swim Island's progress, because it has progressed, but it hasn't progressed where we want it to. There's still okay. there's still work to be done, right? Yeah. But it's progressed. Um, what are the things that you can attribute to, to that? And again, I'm part of a team, yeah. right? So I lead a team, but I'm part of a team. So the key thing, first of all, was get great people to work with you. So the performance department was relatively small when I arrived, but through support of Sport Ireland, Sport NI, and particularly through Swim Ireland itself as a company, they found me the means and, and method to be able to appoint some great people. And we already had some good people in place. You know, we had Damien Ball already as national diving coach, and we had Lars Humer coaching in Limerick, you know, as a highly yeah. reputed coach. Um, and... You know, and Andy Reid already working with us as a performance pathway manager, and and are now at risk of forgetting people and upsetting them by not naming them. But we had some we had some good people, right? So yeah. But I needed a, a wealth of experience around me to support me in my ideas because I could come up with the ideas, but then executing them was was quite important. You know, so John Watson came on board, and um, <clears throat> and then eventually Ben Hickson came in as a, as a swimming coach after a period of time. And as you say, we got Steve and then Lars decided he was going back to Nash, uh, to New Zealand. So we brought John Shuranik in to coach Limerick. And so we, we started to build a really good team around us. Um, so quality people is key. Then clear strategic direction about what it is you're trying to achieve and, and, and how you're going to get there. So we didn't at first fully go down a centralised system. You know, we had a, a, a national centre in Dublin and a national centre in Limerick, but they needed revamping and re-energising a bit. We did that. Yeah. Uh, most recently, we've, we've introduced another centre in Ulster so that Northern Ireland have a centre too. So there's three. Um, <clears throat> we absolutely have a preference that Irish athletes swim on the island of Ireland because yeah. we think that the green track suit, if it's paramount, there's no better people to look after them and get them to swim at their best when they need to swim at their best than than an Irish system, right? Yeah. And our centres are the best equipped systems within the country. But there are those athletes that choose that they're, they're going to go offshore and you know try try a new a new environment in which to do that, uh, particularly if they've lived in Ireland all their life and they want to try something different. And although it's not our preference. If they do it and it works, we absolutely support it. Yeah. Um, so we we wanted to make sure that there was an option on the island that meant that swimmers didn't feel they had to leave 
They only left out of choice, not left out of necessity. Yeah, definitely. We we aligned all the regional programs. You know, so if you think of your swimming in, in England, of Southwest and Northeast and Northwest and so on, we have four provinces that would be the, the equal sort of status to that, Leinster, Munster, Connacht and Ulster. Uh, and we wanted them all pretty much doing the same thing at the same time for the same reason, so that if you were a swimmer in Connacht and you moved to Leinster, you could slip into their system real easy and understand it and all the same language was there and the same times of the year were there. Um some some um, differences within what they do because some of the regions have higher populations than others, so the standard yeah. of swimming can be higher for that reason. We're one of our regions that still doesn't have a 50-metre pool, so we have to take that into account. Yeah. But where we could align it. <clears throat> um, we wanted swimming and diving to, to, to shake hands and hold hands on a daily basis and support each other. So we properly brought diving into the performance system, the diving coach, tried to align language and uh, what we were doing around swimming and diving as much as we could, again, so that they worked hand in glove. Um, And so I I think through the employment or contracting of quality people, putting a robust centralised system in place that was a good option for athletes, getting the regions to to move... um, yeah, the same in the, in the same way, at the same speed as each other. Um, yeah. We we revamped the domestic swimming competition calendar so that again, it, it made to me at least it made a lot more sense as to what we were trying to achieve internationally. But not everybody's an international athlete, so it needed to make sense yeah. domestically. Um, and so it root and branch, Matt, over over the period of time, there's there's an awful yeah. lot that's that's changed, and then. I know I'm going on a bit about this particular question, but um, when you make a change and you then recognise that it could change for the better still or something that you took away, maybe you should have left in, don't be afraid to go back and change it again. Don't be afraid to go, hands up, all right? We we had a go at that. We thought it would be right. Um. It isn't exactly what we were looking for, so we'll now do this instead. <clears throat> don't don't hold on to a plan or an action just because it's one that you've made, but you recognise that it could be better still. Um, so that's that's something as well. You know, we've kind of we've evolved like this at times. You know, up, up peaks and troughs rather than a, a linear straight line. No, definitely, and it's. I mean, it's brilliant to see. Obviously, I really good friends with Steve still stay in contact and he's definitely uh, an advocate of everything that's going on. So um, it is really good to see. Um, so John, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. You've now, you're in a position now where obviously you oversee all of, all of uh, Swim Island and all the successes that you've had in the five years you've been there. You've got all of the success you had while you were at Plymouth Leander. If you could pick maybe one, I'll I'll maybe be generous and give you three moments that as a swimming coach or as an MPD that stand out for you as your greatest successes. Is there anything that that sort of jumps to mind? Right. So again, the first thing I'll say is the majority of your successes as a coach are actually other people's successes that you've had a hand in. Yeah. Right. So let's just put some context around it. So, of course, I'm extremely proud to have coached an Olympic gold medalist. So um, that that that's a standout moment for me, and it will forevermore be a standout moment because um, you never know if you're ever going to coach another one. And at the moment, I'm not coaching, so it's not going to happen. But yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm part of that very very small group of people out there that have had that ultimate elation of watching the hand hit the wall and going wow I was part of that process okay so that that would be that would be that would be one there there are some key moments in in club swimming that are really small in comparison but at the time they were huge you know like Plymouth Leander's first inter-club title at a county level or 
I mean, the first time that you win the National Arena League nationally, you know, and you just sort of go, you just stop. And after 52 events, you go, wow, we're the, we're the best swimming club in England and Wales. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. But it's every, it's everyone else that's diving in, not you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, so you're, you can attribute yourself to part of the success, but it's not your success. It's, you know, it's, but that was, that was fantastic. Um, in Irish swimming, um, we we haven't we haven't got to where I want to be yet, but I think that being there in Tokyo and you know Mona making a final was was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and that relay that relay getting in that was wonderful. Um, watching Dan Whiffen win Northern Ireland's first Commonwealth Games medal for able-bodied swimming this year. That's wonderful. In some other nations, they're quite small fry. But for, for Irish swimming, they're significant signposts on the way to where we want to be. Um, and so there's there's a lot of firsts yeah. that, that have happened in the last five or six years. And some of them might seem quite superficial and shallow to some people. But for the Irish swimming community, there's some really big deals in there, really big deals in there. Um, where, the, where the tricky thing is for, for most nations of our size now is that the Olympic qualification times are set so tough for Paris that we're going to have smaller teams. So anybody that measures success by the size of their team um, is – the team's going to be smaller. It's only the the US and the Great Britain and Australia and those nations that are going to go with similar sized teams. But the nations of our size are inevitably going to go with smaller teams. The key is, if those teams are smaller, can you have a higher impact on the meet when you get there? And that's the thing that I want to I want to see in Paris from us. Is um, you know we had one final in Tokyo and it was the first final in twenty five years. Well. Okay, so how many finals this time? And is it more than a final? You know, where are we challenging in terms of the podium? And I always think that once you're in the final, there's only five people that don't win a medal. Getting into the final is the tough bit. So that's the that's the next piece. So you know, you would you would take the Olympic gold medal and uh, uh, and Ruta's brilliance and the things that Plymouth Leander did as an entity as a club. And then in Irish swimming, it's it's quite hard to pick because most of the things that are, are successful are, 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 can be attributed to the performance director, but rarely directly. You know, yeah. most of them are a coach that's achieved something with an athlete, or a, a, you know what I mean. It's yeah, definitely. I'm not going to say to you, we wrote a great performance plan and it was better than everybody else's sport. You know, that's yeah. just a woeful thing to give you. You know what I mean? It's that sort yeah, of Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. So, I mean, you, you lead quite nicely into to my next point. Obviously, you're talking there of Paris. Um, what are your sort of hopes and dreams for Paris, for for Swim Island and, and Irish Divers? Um, we want to we want to um, achieve a higher lifetime best strike rate at an Olympic Games than we've ever had before. Okay. Right, so we all know how tough it is to walk in that environment and and swim lifetime bests. You know, most nations get somewhere between ten and twenty percent lifetime best at an Olympic Games. Well, we need to be higher than that if we're going to see athletes through the rounds. But you know, the moment you start talking about you know above 30 or 40% lifetime best, that's real tough. So we want to we wanna be better than we've ever been before in terms of lifetime best at an Olympic Games. Um, we want more than one final. And we have athletes that are capable of doing that. There's no doubt about it. Um, if we have a relay there, we would like the relay to be more competitive than last time. You know, last time the relay did a real good job despite us not being able to send our best quartet in that particular event. They still finished higher than they were, than they were ranked. Um, but if, if we have a relay there this time, again, which is tough, um, then we'd like it to be even more competitive. Um, 
and in and in diving, um, you know, most um, our most experienced Olympian in diving has retired in okay. in Ollie. Um, we we now have two to three girls that are absolutely capable of being there. So there's a, uh, but we also have a good young lad um, who's based in Leeds called Jake Passmore that could join them if he if he um, you know can accelerate his development appropriately. So it'd be nice to have a, a bigger cohort of divers there if possible, and yeah. and to see those divers at least out of the heats, if not into finals. Um, so I suppose it's. Is like look at the markers that we've set before, and then just you know we we want to be better than all of those. We just want to see ourselves progressing from one Olympics to the next. But as with a lot of nations, one of the markers can't be do you have more athletes? Um, because yeah. with the qualifying times that have been set, that they're they're brutally tough. You know they are they are really nasty to get qualified this time. Brilliant, and then. John, we'll come in towards the end. I know you're you're extremely busy, um, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, but if you put the the selfish John Rudd hat, hat back on, like you said, when you you sort of made that decision to move to Ireland, what what's next for for John Rudd? What's next in your career? I really like this. Yeah. Um, so you know, I'm gonna I'm. Um... I'm going to be here till LA as a minimum. And then it'll be some Ireland's decision at that point, what happens, um, okay. much less mine. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm here for at least uh, another, what, six years doing this. And I enjoy it. And, um, and I also, you know, stretch myself through my work with World Swimming Coaches Association and now with Fina and Len in in some of their committee work in helping coaches and swimming on a worldwide level. Um, The World Swimming Coaches Association, if if people aren't members out there, I'd encourage them to do do so immediately because it's free. Um, And it's it's the only international coach advocacy body that is truly independent. Um, and so um, th- they want to work with and support coaches globally, uh, yeah. and I really enjoy that work. Um, and then most recently, I got myself involved in two different coaching and education commissions and committees with both Fina and Len, and that allows, again, me to to feel like I'm giving something to the sport that I love on a, on a grander scale than, than Ireland or my home nation. So... Um, yeah, at the moment, you know, all of those plates that are spinning, if you like, uh, are are keeping me more than satisfied in a in a vocational sense. No, definitely. I mean, I, I know I'm signed up to it, but we'll get the the link in the description to this podcast when it goes out, so coaches that are listening can can definitely sign up, John, because um, it's some brilliant stuff. I know there was an email yesterday yesterday about another talk that's happening soon um via zoom which which i'm looking forward to um if if we step away from the work side now john um obviously for those i I don't know if you want to speak about it or not but i'm going to bring it up i know you've recently got married um uh, and things uh are going pretty well in your your personal life at the moment like what what what's you know normal life like for john rudd as opposed to the the working life that we've spoke about so much. Yeah, normal life's good. Um, I'm married to an ex, a, an exceptional uh, person in Teresa, and um, you know we were together for a long time, and and finally decided to uh, to do the right thing and tie the <laughs> knot, which um, which happened in the middle of COVID, so that was a bit bizarre. Um, and we've got four great kids, three. Three boys and a, and a and a girl, and uh, our eldest Tom coaches in Dubai. Uh, Amy uh, is a swimming teacher in Dubai. George has just started coaching at the Royal School in Wolverhampton with Mark Spackman, and Jack, the youngest, um, is just about to finish his A levels, um, and he's a great swimmer. And the three boys all swam competitively. Uh, Amy didn't, but has ended up with a career in swimming. Um, 
Jack and George both won national medals this year, which was it was great for George because it was almost like his retirement medal before he started coaching. And Jack won a, a national medal in open water, and he's an absolute machine when he swims. So super proud of all four of our kids, keep in touch with them regularly. Um got we've got aging parents, but um they're you know they're 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 healthy and um and great to speak to and we speak to them on a daily basis. So the, the weird thing is living in Ireland, I can be back into into England to see family almost quicker than I could when I lived in Plymouth. Because Plymouth would have been a drive and Ireland's a pretty much a forty five minute flight into any into any British airport. Um, yeah. So the, the time spent is is shorter. Um, so, um, hey, look, we, we we live in a nice place in Ireland, and um, uh, and life's good. I can't I can't grumble in the slightest. No, good. It's really good to hear. Next time you're over, we definitely need to catch up because it's been too long since we've done a face to face and and possibly had a a shandy or two. Um, so we need to make that happen. Um, John, I don't know if you've listened to the, the the podcast, but I like to finish with letting the guest that's on um, ask me two, three questions that, that maybe they would like to ask me. So we'll finish with that and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you, I know you're, you're jumping on a plane to England soon, so I don't want to make you miss that. All right, Matt. So the first thing I'd, I'd, uh, I'd ask you is, um, if you could jump in your time machine and go back to being an athlete in your prime, what would you have done differently? Um, I, th- I, th- I think what you touched on earlier, the the holistic side of it, um, I definitely could have improved. Um, I was I was probably a little bit guilty of of eating the wrong foods and 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 late nights without enough sleep, um, without a shadow of a doubt, but also probably, probably could have tried harder in training and, uh, and not as, as you'll know, as my coach, not, you know, let maybe something that was maybe a one out of 10 little niggle turn into actually, I can't swim anymore because my shoulder hurts or, you know, finding the excuse for why I couldn't do things rather than, giving myself some reasons why I could. Um, yeah, definitely. They, they'd be the two biggest things is a lot more effort in training and less excuses and, and you know, cut the cut the rubbish out of my life. Well, it's, it's you know, it's nice to hear that, that level of honesty and reflection. Um, like we say to uh, our athletes all the time, Unfortunately, there is no such time machine to go back and put these things right. And quite often when you're in the moment, you don't appreciate what it is that you have to do. Um, as coaches, we can make mistakes today and next week, next year, in five years' time, be putting those right and still have plenty of time to do it. But as athletes, we don't have that luxury of time, unfortunately. So, no. and, and then I, the only other question I'd ask you is, you know, you're providing a great service here with this podcast that a lot of people hopefully will listen to and enjoy and and long may it last. You know, what's your what's your motivation for doing this, for for starting this podcast? Um so it it started off with just having a couple of conversations with different people. Um so Chris Cook, who was the first guest, just you know. I got to know Chris on a on a really personal level, um, and I just sort of thought to myself, we don't we don't very often get to know the person. We only get to know what they've done. So when we look up certain people, we can see the the accolades and the worked in in Brazil or Ireland or wherever, but we you don't actually know who that person is and. Um, I think you know me as well as you do. I, I, I like to talk. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of of just sitting down, having a conversation, and and really getting to know the crooks of the person and why they sort of do what they do. Um, so that was the, that was the first one. the The, the second one was um, I'd I'd just left Dubai. I was coming back to to, to Plymouth, and I wasn't 100 percent sure if I had a job. 
Um, so it was going to be something to do to fill the time. Um, so you know, very luckily, I've got I've I've got a job now back at Plymouth Eander, back at back at my roots. Um, you know, I'm starting a master's degree uh, with Marjon um, next week. Um, so lots of things are happening there. But yeah, it it started as I was I was a little bit bored before I knew if I was going to have a job or not, and and um, I, it seems to be the way everyone communicates now, and and. You know, as as much terrible stuff came out of the pandemic, the Zoom, the podcasts, and all that uh, were probably one of the really good ones. Cool, that's awesome. Brilliant. Well, look, John, I know, like I said, I know you're really busy, and you've got to you've got to jump on a flight pretty soon, so I won't keep you too long. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Um, really, really do appreciate you. Um, giving up this this sort of hour to to have a chat to us um and like i said next time uh you're over or or maybe i can get over to dublin we'll have to to do this face to face and and over a guinness or two that'd be good that'd be good and keep up this good work matt appreciate it john thanks very much and uh enjoy your time back in england all the best pal cheers john Thanks for listening to Behind the Stats with Matt Cross, sponsored by Buzz Physique. Go to buzzfizzy.co.uk and use the code MATT10 to apply 10% off your orders. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with the show on Twitter at Behind underscore Matt and on Instagram at Behind the Stats with Matt. Until next time.